Today, we're talking to Ellie Strandquist, who's a first-gen PhD student in the computer science department with a non-traditional background. Hi, Ellie, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you, your research, your advisors, and your interests. Sure, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I am a PhD student in the computer science and engineering department, um, but I'm very interested in psychology and the human brain and how it works and ticks. Um, so I'm super lucky because I work with, honestly, a ton of different people. Um, I'm advised by Rajesh Rao in the computer science department, Bing Brunton in the biology department, and Jeffrey Heron in the department of neurological surgery. Um, plus a ton of other amazing colleagues that are other fellow grad students, um, postdocs, undergrads. Uh, and so I am able to use uh, techniques that I know from my technical background as a computer scientist, um, including machine learning to uh, explore interesting questions in the brain. Um, and I would say something I'm particularly interested in is what goes on in our brains during everyday behaviors. Um, when you're thinking, when you're feeling an emotion, um, maybe you're just, you're walking and then maybe you start running. Um, those, there's just, there's so much that goes on in our brains even doing the tiniest, simplest task. Um, and if we can kind of peek at what goes on in the brain and understand it a little bit better during normal everyday things, we can solve so many problems, we can help so many people. Um, and computer science is really cool because it's very good at solving problems um, in a way that scales. Um, so yeah, those are generally the things I'm interested in, I, I guess I would say, is how to, how to better understand the brain and psychology and humans and how do we solve problems at scale. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so you're focusing on sort of these everyday tasks, maybe, uh, maybe writing, maybe like drinking a glass of water or, uh, or something more cognitive as well. Um, and uh, thinking about how you can use computer science techniques, right, to, to approach that and understand what the brain is actually doing during those everyday tasks. Is that, is that somewhat right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great, great. Right. Um, so one question that we like to ask uh, all our interviewees if you could, is if you could describe your research as a sci-fi novel. Oh man, uh, I will just dream for a second and kind of talk about what I would love to see happen. Uh, I don't think the field is close enough yet for me to see this probably in my lifetime. <laughs> um, but, you know, on that same note of better understanding what's going on in the human brain, like as we do our normal daily things, um, what happens when you're learning and when you are thinking and when you're, I don't know, having some higher cognitive thought, what's going on in there? If we know and understand how that works, the process of thinking <laughs> and learning, um, is there some way that I could take everything I know, like with all the classes I've taken and the life experiences I've had and, I don't know, download it on a USB stick and just stick it in someone else's brain and they can just have all of my knowledge without having to spend, you know, 30 plus years accruing it. Uh, that's so far away from the things I work on now, which are much simpler because we don't know enough to make that happen yet. Uh, but in a sci-fi world, if I could make it happen, I would love to see that because um, education is so empowering. It changes lives, uh, it solves so many problems. 
but it's slow. <laughs> it takes time. So if there is a way that we could speed that up and be more efficient about it, the way that we can learn and make it more accessible, that would just be unbelievably cool. <laughs> maybe one day. Yeah, maybe one day. That it's a that's such an interesting like approach to what the future could be like. And it reminds me like when I was a kid, I always wished that I could um like upload my brain to a computer and then have it the computer do my homework for me because I knew that like all the knowledge was there. So it's like a very similar thing where it's like can we try to extract the the learning and the knowledge that's already in our brain and somehow either in my case do my homework automatically or in your case like teach somebody else. Yes, because it takes so long and like there's so many other things I wish I could learn and study and get really good at that I know I won't have time for, right? And how great would it be if we could just download it and it's just there? Um, ugh, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, you go to bed and then the next morning you can play like Beethoven. That'd be awesome. Yes, speak other languages. You're just an expert in the most current state of the art machine learning techniques, which is what I'm always trying to keep up on and totally never on top of. <laughs> so yeah. So following up from that, I'm kind of curious, like what things that are current, so focusing a little bit more on like modern day, what we can achieve, what things you're excited about in the field? Yeah. Um, one thing that I'm so, so excited about actually, that I think we are somewhat able to start doing um, is the implications that this field has for um, psychiatry and mental health. Um, I think you know, as a society, we are getting better at understanding that mental health is a tangible, real thing, just like, you know, your physical health. We, we kind of know that's a tangible, real thing. Um, but we have a long way to go, right, in understanding, again, how that all works in our, in our brains and our bodies, you know, how neurons interact with um, hormone levels, stress, things like that. Um, and I heard uh, a cool talk from a scientist last year I huh, can't remember his name. He was a guest lecturer, um, but that's kind of what he does. He's interested in psychiatry and neuroscience. Um, how do we understand what's happening in our brains, you know, with various mental health issues? Can we be more precise about it? Can we see what's going on um, in such a way that it's just as clear and obvious as maybe a broken leg might be? I think that would be a game changer. Uh, of course, for people's health, certainly, and, and you know the benefits of feeling better, but also in the way that people perceive mental health issues, um, which again, I think we're getting better at recognizing that it's a thing and it's a problem, but I, I still think we're, we're pretty, not where we could be yet, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's, it's, it's early yet still for sure, um, but I think that's within reach um, and is starting to happen. And, I don't know. I'm, I'm really I'm big on mental health and therapy and um, all those things. So that's something that's really, really exciting to me and I think attainable. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And to follow up on that, um, I'm curious, kind of going back to your your research that you're describing, trying to understand a higher cognitive process and, and everyday behavior. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you know you might be able to use um, learnings from that, understanding how the brain functions on every day and connected to mental health? Uh, yes, actually, I'm on a project right now that may open that door. Um, I'm working with 
patients who have Parkinson's disease. Um, and there are many side effects that you get from Parkinson's disease. And actually some of them are mental health related, um, including uh, depression, uh, anxiety, um, and various other physiological things as well. Um, and the research I'm doing right now, um, we're trying to design a system to automate the treatment that they receive. Uh, the treatment that they get uh, comes from electrical stimulation from an implant that's uh, put deep inside their brain actually. Um, but right now we need a lot of manual help and input from doctors and clinicians and surgeons. So it's slow and it's, it's manual and um, you know that, that it's not, um, you, you are not static as a person, right? Like your mood might change from one minute to the next, like one minute you're not hungry and then suddenly you're starving. We're always, we're changing, right? All the time on a minute to minute basis. So it would be nice if the, the therapies and treatments we offer um, people could be changing in real time to keep up as their bodies change. Um, that's it, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, so that's part of what my research is looking at is um, how can we design uh, algorithms and um, uh, systems that can identify what's going on, update, change uh, per, uh, you know, per needed uh, based on what's happening in the body and, and better treat people um, more precisely. Uh, so, I, I mean, it will start off more simply, I think, with things like tremor um, or rigidity, which are some of the, the symptoms you see in Parkinson's disease. Um, but there's a lot of room there for other things like mental health, emotions, um, other types of physical activity, things like that. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see the implications of where that research goes and how it can help people, um, especially because I know that that matters to you uh, a lot. Um, so kind of transitioning out of talking about the research itself, um, I'm curious about like your path to grad school. How did you get there? Um, I know it was maybe a little bit of a windy path, but kind of what's the story? Um, coming to grad school wasn't actually that windy. It was a little bit more windy for me to go to college, like undergraduate, I would say. That was a bit more strange um, or perhaps not traditional. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I guess quickly uh, after high school, I didn't go to college um, and I decided to try my hand at a career in the culinary field um, and ended up uh, becoming really interested in pastry and chocolate work. And so I was a pastry chef for about eight years. Um, that ended up not being a great career choice for me. Um, and eventually I decided to just totally start from scratch <laughs> and um, go to college for the first time. Um, and it took a while to choose computer science as a major. That's not how I started at all. Um, never in a million years did I imagine I would follow computer science. Never in a million years did I think I would go to grad school or study neuroscience or any of this at all. Um, but as I explored different options, I did become interested in um, biology, I would say, is where it kind of started. Um, and I was curious about research. I didn't know what it was. I was like, no, nah, I'll just give it a try. And if I hate it, it's fine. You know, I just, I'd heard about it and I was just intrigued like tons of other things. And I ended up just really loving it. Um, and this is still all in my, 
in my undergraduate um, time, by the way. So I did bioinformatics research where I'm trying to solve biological problems. Um, and I liked it so much that I just wanted to keep going. <laughs> and that's honestly, I would say what initially like pushed me to pursue grad school um, as I just was really enjoying my research as an undergraduate. In fact, I didn't want to do my classes or my homework. I just wanted to do research. <laughs> um, and so once I, you know, got to my undergrad, which was more of a leap, I would say, and eventually chose computer science and started doing research, making the jump to grad school actually wasn't um, necessarily as big of a jump. Uh, that's such a fascinating background. And I mean, going from like pastry chef to being a computer science PhD student studying neuroengineering is, um, well, well, to me, it seems like it's from one world to the next. Um, so it's really incredible that you made that shift. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you really uh, decided to go back to school in the first place and decided to um, try for college. Cause that's, uh, I can imagine can be very daunting. Um, and you know, kind of like resources did you, uh, did you find to that really uh, push you along that track or even just introduce you to research and biology? Uh. Yeah, that is more of a windy gradual tale, I guess. I, I, I think that the part of what got me to go to college in the first place was just um, urgency. Uh, you know, I, I realized that the career I'd chosen um, was going to be really tough. <laughs> um, it's very long hours, very little pay. Um, and it's very physically demanding. So my body was starting to have major problems. Like even in my early twenties, I was starting to feel like broken down. And I was like, how am I gonna manage, you know, when I'm 40, 50 years old, I'm gonna be in trouble. Um, and what a lot of people do in the field actually to kind of get around that um, is they wanna start their own business anyway. And when you do that, you can kind of start to transition to more being a business owner and you hire someone else to do the heavy lifting in the kitchen. And I knew pretty early on, I didn't wanna go that route. Um, and I just had like a string of various experiences that weren't going well. The most recent job I had as a pastry chef was kind of like the final straw. <laughs> it was pretty rough, just, just way, way, way too much work and not enough support. Um, and I was like, I think, I think feeling that urgency and just realizing it wasn't going to get better pushed me to start over. Um, and I have always been curious. I've always been a big reader, I guess I would say. So the general love of learning is something I've always had. Um, that's kind of always been there. And right after high school, I was pretty typical, like, ah, oh, so glad I'm done. I'm never going back to school, like freedom, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, a few years later that wears off and you don't remember that feeling. <laughs> and I was like, gosh, you know, there are so many things I wish I knew there's so much knowledge I don't have. And it'd be kind of cool to maybe fill in some gaps. I had a pretty atypical, uh, what do you say, grade school education. I was homeschooled K through 12. Um, and I got a lot of uh, education in the arts and literature and things like that, but little math and basically no science at all. <laughs> um, and so I was honestly kind of feeling that uh, 
dearth of knowledge and kind of wishing to be a bit more well-rounded um, by the time I spend a few years, you know, in this culinary career. Um, so that, I guess, combined with just the life experience of realizing how impactful education can be, how life-changing it can be, um, I think all contributed to me saying, let's just, just try, let's just try. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it makes a lot of sense kind of having that gap of knowledge about science and math and all and STEM, all of that. And I'm curious if that kind of drove you to become interested in research. Was it kind of trying to fill in that gap and explore more and understand that? Probably, yes. Um, the school I went to, one of the reasons I chose it for my undergrad was because it had a ton of different majors and I just had zero idea what I was going to do. Like when I started, I was undeclared. And I wanted a lot of options because I just didn't know. So I tried to try a lot of different things. Um, and they also had a lot of opportunity for undergraduate research. I, I kind of noticed that just looking online at the school when I was filling out applications. Um, so yeah, I think I was curious about filling in those knowledge gaps. Um, and I did just happen to run into a good teacher it was like, you should take this class. I don't even necessarily remember why exactly she said it, but um, I took it. It was, a, it was a lab class actually, where you um, isolate bacteriophage, which are actually viruses that attack bacteria. Uh, and you sequence their DNA. And I just like completely lost it. Like I loved it so much. And it turns out that uh, a big part of what I love about pastry is actually the chemistry of it. Uh, the being able to manipulate the molecules in pastry to make it do exactly what you want. I love that part. Um, and I felt some similar vibes actually in a biology lab. <laughs> so in that sense, I actually can see a total parallel, even though when you hear pastry to neuroscience, it doesn't, you don't see the jump right away. <laughs> um, but kind of the nuts and bolts, like exactly how things tick, how they work is a thing that I think I've always been curious about. So once I took that class and kind of got a little bit of a feel for what research felt like and could be and do, I wanted to keep going. And I found a, a professor who was willing to take me on to do undergraduate research um, and did that for probably two and a half years. Very interesting. Um, so moving on to grad school, what, what surprised you about grad school? What did you expect? Um, I realized when we got here. I didn't expect the pandemic, which I know is such an obvious thing, but I just have to say it because I didn't expect that. And I'll probably never not wonder what my experience would have been like the first couple of years if that hadn't happened, right? <laughs> uh, but maybe that's a cheating answer. I, I think the other thing that I would say I didn't expect is that research as a grad student would feel so different from how it felt as an undergraduate. And I imagine maybe that's very individual, that might not be true for a lot of people, but I just assumed that it would feel very much the same and it actually felt quite different. It took me a while to figure out why that was. I think uh, as an undergraduate student, there's kind of no real expectations that are put on you or less at least. Um, you're kind of just trying it out, like why not? Um, because you're curious. And when I got here, I felt more responsibility and it felt more serious, more like uh, expectations. I just kind of felt that weight, I think. Um, 
and it made me anxious. Like, huh, can I do it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and it's funny too, because not once has anyone ever come up and said something like that to me. Like, we have expectations. And if you don't do X and Y by this date, you're going to be in trouble. Like no one's ever so much as hinted at that. It's something that I just took on somehow. So the fact that it felt more serious um, and that possibly a lot of it was being put on myself by my own self <laughs> was something I didn't anticipate. And I've had to kind of learn how to just navigate that and catch myself and be mindful of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's an interesting point that you're, you noticed that it was so different from sort of the undergraduate research. Uh, and it's true, I think you, like as, as a grad student, you're expected, again, it's, it's not like a verbal expectation, but just like somehow this is expectation that you're molding your research a bit more. So um, yeah, more of that onus falls on you. <laughs> Uh, what do you think it takes to be a successful grad student in your field? Or is there like a advice that you have for interested undergrads, interested high school students? I have to just speak from my own experience. And for me, like by far and away, I think the most important thing to be successful in grad school is probably the same answer I would give for any other realm. And that's going to be people. Um, finding the right people. I can't stress it enough how key that is, <laughs> how important that is um, to find people that you are feel safe with, comfortable with, um, that you're excited to work with, that inspire you. Um, whatever your needs are, the, the, the people you work with will make or break you. Um, I'm so lucky to be at a school that's just like so full of like talented and brilliant people, yes, but also kind people, patient people, people that want to collaborate and help you. Um, that's been really good for me here. And anytime I feel um, hesitant about someone or, you know, getting on a um, project or, you know, any anything like that, and I ignore it, and I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'm always like, oh, man, I should have paid more attention. And anytime I pay attention to what I'm picking up on and kind of follow that, um, it goes better for me. And that's been true, you know, when I was um, a pastry chef <laughs> and it's true now. Um, finding good people that you click with, that you connect with, that'll be there for you, um, as well as, you know, helping you network and helping you in your career later. So far for me, that's overwhelmingly been the main game changer. Um, it's not a techie answer. It's not a sciencey answer. It's just I think, at least for me, it's been a, a big fact of life kind of generally. I think that's important, though. The soft skills are definitely more so like what gets you through. And, and also in another way, the people are what get you through because they're your support system in a lot of ways, too. And that's that's something that you'll need through grad school, no matter how hard or easy it ends up being. Yeah, you got to you got to make, make it a priority to go find your people, your support system. Doesn't have to be a big one. Could just be one or two people. But totally yeah um so kind of thinking about what happens after grad school i'm curious what your thoughts are about what you might want to do um afterwards and where you see yourself going i don't have a very uh well architected plan post-grad school honestly um 
but because of how dramatically my life and career have shifted around over time, I don't, I'm not really worried about it because I just realized that everything you think you know right now, so much is going to change five years from now or even three years from now. Um, I mean, if you, 10 years ago, like I definitely would have laughed if anyone had said that I would be here. Like there's just no way. Right. So I don't have a very tight idea on what I'll end up doing, but um, generally speaking, uh, I am interested in working in industry. So probably a career outside of academia. Um, and I am interested in humanitarian work actually, um, which isn't necessarily obviously in line with something like neuroscience and machine learning and computer science research. Um, but I think that it could be. Uh, one of the reasons why I struggle to answer this question is because what I would like to maybe do after school isn't really something that I find in existence much, um, which would be, you know, can I use the problem solving I'm learning, the, the ability to come up with, you know, novel solutions um, to be useful and to be helpful uh, in a way that's accessible and at scale. Um, so I know this is really vague, but that's just because it is. <laughs> um, I love research. I love problem solving. Um, I love that computer science is so leveraged and can solve things at such scale and bringing that um, to a place that can solve some humanitarian problems in particular is something very compelling um, for me. So in some shape or form, that's what I would like to um, work my way towards after school. So if you could like, because you said that that job maybe doesn't necessarily exist or it's hard to find, but if you if you could find that dream job, I'm curious what it would be like the problems you would be solving, if you have any idea. Um, there are various ones. Uh, I think one in particular is actually more about education than anything else. Um, I think again, I think I said this earlier, but I, I do believe that education is probably the best tool we have for solving most of our problems um, in the world. And, but it is, it's slow and it's, it's hard for everyone to access it and to access it in such a way that it's reasonable quality, right? Um, and so I am particularly drawn to trying to solve those kinds of problems. Like how can we get, um, everyone access to education, um, particularly girls and women. Um, I didn't have access to good, well-rounded education growing up, and that has been um, a challenge and a hurdle to, uh, you know, um, I don't know if I want to say overcome because I think it's still a work in progress, but just a thing to have as part of my background. Um, and, you know, relatively speaking, I am doing great. Um, you know, and there are so many people in the world that had even less of a, a chance to learn than, than I did. So it's something that um, I think about a lot and that I'm drawn to um, try to help solve one day. Yeah. And I think that kind of ties back into like your sci-fi idea as well in terms of like being able to educate people that way. So maybe yes, um, you can live to see that happen one day potentially it could be it I, yeah it does seem somewhat disparate i feel like psychology and neuroscience and humanitarian and education and then computer science but somehow they're all linked in my head <laughs> i just don't know how to 
uh, make it materialize yet in real life. Um, so we'll see. I, I haven't really seen an example of it, I guess, honestly. So yeah, it's hard to talk about a thing when you don't exactly know what it will look like yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think that's all of our questions for today. Thank you so much, Ellie, for coming and talking to us. We were really excited to hear from you and hear about your background and your research and all the amazing things that you have done and will continue to do. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Don't forget to take a bite with Husky Brain Bites next time when we talk to a panel of graduate students about the ins and outs of applying for graduate school. Until then, stay curious. This podcast was produced by the Neurotech Student Club at the University of Washington. Hosted by Manishka Maduri, Manju Anant, and Zoe Steiny Hansen. Edited by Michael Nolan. Music by Asad Beck. Cover art by Pavithra Rajeshwaran.